As we come to spend some time uh, looking at the word, I'd uh, encourage us to turn to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless us and speak to us. Lord, as we look on this topic of thanksgiving, having a heart of gratitude towards you, I pray as we look at this psalm that you would help us. We thank you that by your grace you wish to speak to us, so we pray that you would speak clearly, Lord. Lord, I pray that everything that is said and shown, Lord, will exalt your goodness and your grace, Lord, and exalt your loving kindness towards us. So come and speak, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I would encourage you, firstly, if you have a Bible in front of you, to open it to the book of Psalms, Psalm 107. For those of you who are accustomed to the way that I preach, I usually go verse by verse, but you will have noticed that this passage is a long passage. But don't worry, we'll finish on time. (laughs) My plan is... My plan is to go section by section rather than verse by verse so that we can kind of have an, an idea of how to do things. Ah, oh, perfect. Oh, good. All right, good. It's working. Fantastic. All right, so we're, we're at Thanksgiving Sunday today, and I wanted us to have a look at a psalm which addressed the issue of giving thanks to the Lord. We'll be looking at Psalm 107, as you heard it read. And what I wanted to do before we jump into looking at the sections of the psalm is I wanted to give us an overview so that every section that you look at, you'll kind of figure out where it sits in this huge passage. Because otherwise it's just verse after verse after verse, and you kind of lose where we're, where we're at. So basically, what you'll see is, is that the passage is divided up into a number of sections. So it starts off with an exhortation. Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And God has gathered his people, people from the north, the south, the east, and the west. He has a redeemed community. Then basically the psalmist goes through four different examples. And these four examples seem to be tapped to the four points of the compass that he talked about earlier. So you've got example one, two, three, four, um, going on like that. I hope you can read the Bible verses up here. (laughs) I made it extra small so you could read it. I'll be making it smaller on some of the other slides. Then there's, there's kind of a shift of gear once we get to verse 33, and th- uh, 30, uh, 33 onwards, which talks about God's power, God's power being used for the weak. And finally, there's a, a reminder and an, an encouragement for those who are wise to ponder the loving kindness of God. Okay? So let's go section by section. We start out with the loving kindness of God, sorry, giving thanks to the Lord. So give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, for he is good, his love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those he has redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he has gathered from the lands, from the east and west, from the north and the south. So here we enter the psalm and basically we have a record of the redeemed community talking to one another, singing a song of praise and encouraging one another to give thanks to the Lord. It's kind of a general exhortation and an encouragement. And they're encouraged to give thanks to God for two reasons. The first one is that he is good for God's goodness. And the second one is his enduring love. Now, some versions of this section which says his love endures forever, which we sang in the worship songs today and we actually used in the the call to worship, there's a particular Hebrew word that is used there. Some versions render this, his steadfast love endures forever. And this idea of steadfast love occurs many, many times in Scripture, particularly in the Psalms. 
We have examples in this, this psalm, which is the start of the fifth book of the psalms, which is, is used. It's also used in Psalm 106, which is just the previous one, which closes up the book four of the psalms. Also, in Exodus chapter 34, God uses this very word to describe himself. So we see that his love endures forever. That's what we were talking about. And he talks about God's hesed, as it is, is referred to. His covenant faithful love. It's kind of the confluence of love and loyalty. Love and loyalty coming together. One of the commentators that Pastor Brent had lent me to when I was studying this passage had uh, translated the passage himself and he had rendered this word God's commitment. Let people be, uh, give thanks to the Lord for his commitment to his people. God uses this word, his un, um, love that endures forever, he uses it to describe himself. In, in Exodus chapter 34, where God, at the request of Moses, is revealing himself, he covers Moses in the cleft of the rock, he passes by, and then he declares his name and he describes himself. And what does the Lord say about himself? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, in, ever, in ever, uh, enduring love and faithfulness, keeping hesed for, a thousand, for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. There is a, an author, who's a, a songwriter, whose songs we sometimes sing at church occasionally. He's the one that wrote El Shaddai and a, a few other ones. And he's written a whole book on this one word. And he has given a description which I find very, very enlightening. He said, Hesed, God's love which endures forever, can be described as when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. So we, talk, we hear the redeemed communi uh, community singing this song together. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Encouraging one another to do that. And then we go through four examples of places and peoples who have received the hesed of God. People who had a right to receive nothing from God but received everything from him. We hear the redeemed talking to themselves the redeemed, the gathered people. So we see that uh, we have an example in, um, in verse 3 that this is a people that God has gathered from the lands. And this idea that God has gathered a people for himself is in various places in Scripture. If you look in Isaiah chapter 34 and in Jeremiah chapter 29, there's this idea that God has taken this scattered people and gathered together a people for himself. So this redeemed community, which is singing thanks to God for his unending and enduring love, are people that God himself has gathered to himself. People that God has gathered from all four points of the compass, from east and west and north and south. Now, as we look at these four points of the compass, uh, in the verse 3, where it says east, west, north, and south, some translators translate the word south as from the sea. So it seems to be that there is a good correlation between the four points of the compass which are given in verse 3, and then the four examples which are given. For the last example that we come to is people who are lost at sea and are stuck in a storm in the middle of the ocean. 
So it isn't so much that God has gathered a people from every tribe, people and tongue, although this is true and is a scriptural idea. Here's the idea is that God has gathered together a people for himself from all types of lost situations. And God's hesed, God's committed and enduring love has been poured out on these people who are from this variety of experience of lostness. So this psalm celebrates the confluence of God's love, his loyalty, his committedness, his love, and as I've said, his hesed, his enduring love. So let's jump to the first one of these sections. Those who are hopelessly lost. Some wandered, verse 4, some wandered in deserts, wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and for his wonderful deed for all mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. So the first example of people who comprise this redeemed community that are calling to one another to exalt God and exalt his enduring love is people who are lost, lost in the middle of a barren wasteland. We have a picture of a a desert here with land so parched and dry it is cracked. It's an unsettling feeling of being completely hungry and thirsty. And this verse describes in verse 5 that their life itself is ebbing away. This could very well have been a description of Israel in the wilderness without God's provision. Imagine if God hadn't sent the manna and hadn't sent the quail. This would have been their situation. They would have been lost, hungry and thirsty in the desert and their life would have ebbed away. It's similarly, we could say that it's, it's almost like a description of Hagar and Ishmael as they are sent away from Abraham when Sarah, his wife, becomes too, too jealous of them. Sent away and wandering aimlessly in the wilderness with hardly enough supplies to sustain their life. There's certainly an idea of helplessness here. Not only that, it's very precarious. Their very lives hang in the balance. And then we come to this verse which seems to punctuate every single one of these examples in the middle. The first time this, re- this verse recurs. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. In their distress they called to the, called to the Lord even in the depths of their lostness. You can never be so lost in the wilderness that the ear of the Lord cannot hear you. The voice that is cracked by hunger and thirst, a whisperer, but yet a cry from the heart to the Lord will be heard. And it's amazing the immediacy of God's response to them and the efficacy of that response. They were wandering and then he leads them by a straight way. You would think that if he's leading them by a straight way, it would have been a destination that they would have been able to get to by themselves. And yet they need the help of the Lord. They're wandering and they're led by a straight straight way. The idea here also is that they couldn't have even imagined to get to this destination of safety, even if they had had the supplies. They need God to help them. They were in an absolutely pitiful situation. 
Yet these people who are part of the gathered people of God, part of this company of the redeemed, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, his wonderful deeds to all of mankind. God's unfailing love is described here in his response to these people who are helplessly lost. These are wonderful deeds. God is a rescuer. He hears. He acts. He leads them by a straight way. He provides a place where they can have protection and provision. He leads them to a city. His wonderful deeds are described here. And this is a wonderful deed for all of mankind. There is nothing that these lost people can boast of here. They come with nothing to their God except the call for help. Nothing to recommend themselves. They are lost, they're weary, they're hungry, and they're at the edge of their life. And it is the unfailing love of the Lord that is the source of their response. Not only that, they've seen the depth of hunger and thirst. Their throats are parched, their stomachs ache for food. And God, he satisfies them. He satisfies the thirst and fills the hungry with good things. He grants satisfying sustenance to their life. What a wonderful God we have in this first example. So we see that God rescues, he leads, and he satisfies. So each of these examples give us something as a description of the people who are part of the, uh, the redeemed community and a description of God, God's loving kindness expressed and a reason why this redeemed community must say thank you and give thanks to the Lord. Let's move on to the next example. Helpless captives. Verse 10. Some sat in darkness, in utter darkness, prisoners suffering in iron chains, because they rebelled against God's command and despised the plan of the Most High. So he subjected them to bitter labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind, for he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts through the bars of iron. Here we have a picture on the, uh, on the screen. It's a picture from the Chateau d'If. For those of you who have read the account of Monte Cristo, this is the fortress which is off the coast of France on a little island an impenetrable fortress where political prisoners were housed. When, the, when Edmond Dantes is put into this prison, he's taken deep into the dungeons and he's shut into this prison. And I, if I recall well, although the book was 60 hours long, so I might be a bit wrong on some of these details, the cell was completely dark. He was sitting in utter darkness. So his utter darkness was here to describe we have a bathroom. It isn't not exactly the same. It's not a dungeon. We have a bathroom in my house it, in the basement. It doesn't have any windows. Okay. And if you close the door and if it's at night time so there's no light from the surrounding room, the room is absolutely dark. There's not one bit of light in there. It's unnerving because if you turn off the light, which I've done, you might think I'm a weirdo or whatever. I needed to do it for the sermon. <laughs> if you go into that room and you turn off the light, you almost lose your sense of orientation. It's really, it's, it's really, it's really uh, troubling, you know, after a little while. You th- you know, initially you're there, I'm just in my house, and you're like, am I really in my house? This sense of utter, deep darkness. 
So we come to this place where there's absolute darkness and they are not only in the darkness but they're bound with iron chains that they cannot remove. Now this, this section here is that it's not just that they're helpless in the desert. There's that here they've rebelled against the plan of God. There's sin involved. They're being punished by God. It sounds almost like the exiles. They're given bitter labor that would have completely cast back their collective memory to the time in Egypt or the Babylonian exiles. They stumbled, the passage says. In comparison and in contrast to the previous example, they're culpable for this. This is their own fault. They don't deserve to receive anything good from God. These are those who have received the commands of God because they know it and then they think that they know better and they've rebelled against these commands. They're completely in captive. They're absolutely helpless. And we see helplessness here recurring again as a theme. And in the darkness, bound in iron bars, behind doors of bronze and gates of bronze, finally when they've hit absolutely the bottom in this utter darkness, in the depth of their distress, under the punishing hand of God, there is yet grace to be found. These people can call out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. Now one would think that these people are contemptible because it is only when they came absolutely to the bottom and they're absolutely lost that their eyes finally turned to God. Surely on the way to the prison, while the iron bars were being put on them, whilst the door was being closed, surely it is at that point that they should have called out to God. And yet it is here only in the depths of the result of their sin, this dungeon with utter darkness, that they finally get the sense to call out to God. These sinners, these foolish sinners, are among the redeemed community. These are the people who are singing amongst that redeemed community. Give thanks to the Lord for his enduring love endures forever. This is a wonderful deed for mankind, the salvation of sinners. We see on display the commitment of God's love. We see what happens to those who receive the goodness of God. Those who by all rights could, accept, uh, could expect nothing from the hand of God. What have they received? They've received everything. He brings them out. He not only brings them out, he exerts his power to set them free. He breaks the gates of bronze and cuts through the bars of iron. God frees the captive. Let's move on to the next section. It's going pretty quickly, huh? I mean, if we had gone verse by verse, imagine we'd been at verse 4 by now. The next section we come to is those who are mortally sick. Verse 17 to 22. Some became fools through their rebellious ways and they suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food and drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. These people had become fools 
through their rebellious ways. It sounds to me like a description of what you hear in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their, foolish, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that looked like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. This description in Romans talking about those who intentionally reject the ways of God and the commands of God and the revelation of God in So we see here that these iniquities, these foolish people that have rebelliously rejected God, they end up afflicted, finally, with the pleasures of sin as a distant memory. Only the disease of sin is remaining now. They are sick, and sick to the point of death. I wonder, have you ever been so sick that you can't stand the sight of food? This guy has happened to me a couple of times. It's usually like a stomach bug or something. It's, it's hurting, you know, and you've had all the stuff that comes along with that. And then, you, you know, you, someone's trying to encourage you to eat it. You don't even want to look at it. You know that theoretically, consuming this will strengthen your body, even if you throw it out. You know, some of it, some of that nutrition will get into your body, but you can't even stand the sight of it. I've, I've even seen with some of our kids when they get ill, they can't even keep water down. You know, they get so sick with like, oh, what's it, the gastro, they call it here. Have some water and like two minutes later they're throwing it up again. Couldn't even stand the sight of them. This is the type of imagery that's put here. These people that have sinned and that they're so deathly sick. And even as you get weaker and weaker, this repulsion of food grows stronger to them, even though you know that it could strengthen you. And the sickness is deepening and death is coming close. Here again we see the precarious nature of those who are eventually saved and form this covenant community that sing this song to encourage one another to give thanks to the, God, the Lord for his uh, enduring love. Their precarious situation is highlighted here. They hang in the balance here between life and death, life and eternal perdition. Who are these pitiful people that God has placed his steadfast covenant faithful love on? Surely it's those people who are worthy. No. It's these people who are absolutely unworthy. They've rejected and been rebellious against the Lord. Consider this, pit- this pitiful situation. It's only augmented again by the fact that these fools, they remain in their folly only till the point they come right close to the gates of death that they're willing to call out to God for help. You would think that on the way to getting sick, they would have realized that they need to call out to God. You would have thought that by now it is clear that this, all this sickness and affliction is from the hand of God. Call out to God for mercy. No, they wait till the point they're at the point of death. And yet, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. Even these people, contemptible as they are, when they send out the SOS to God, God's ears are willing to hear. Think of the heart of God that is willing to see someone in the depth of sin. And then when they truly call out in their distress, he's willing to respond. What an amazing God who has lavished such enduring love on those he's committed to. What an amazing, fortunate, redeemed community we are for having experienced such love at the hand of God. Think of the steadfastness of God. As we acknowledge these people who are deep in their predicament, as they finally cast themselves on him wholly, 
and they receive this inexhaustible fountain of steadfast love from the Lord? What response do they get as they call out to the Lord in their distress? It takes but a single word from the Lord to heal them. It reminds me of Jesus when he casts out the demon. A single word, go, and the demon is cast out. It takes but a single word from the Lord to speak to this person who is at the edge of death and restore them back to life again. What amazing things and wonderful things God has done for mankind. Bring a thank offering before the Lord. And what does God free these people who are at the edge of death to do? He brings them and he makes them compose songs of joy. These people who were once, death was right, right there for them. They form part of this community and they exalt one another. Maybe they exalt one another. Hey guys, why didn't you sing the song that I composed when God saved me from the depths of suffering? By the way, I suffered because I was sinning against the Lord and he put a song in my heart. Come, sing this song with me. What an amazing God we serve. Fourth example. I've got to be excited there. forgot all of that stuff. That's okay. Those who are stuck in the storm at sea. I find that these pictures of the storm at sea, it always looks better with a sailboat than with a, like an ocean liner with, with engines. It just looks a lot more precarious. It looks a lot more terrible, doesn't it? Not that if you were in an ocean liner like the Titanic or something, you would be in any better situation in a storm like this. Okay, so verse 23 to 32. Some went out, in, uh, out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he, stir, he spoke and stirred up a tempest they lifted, that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' ends. They cried out to the Lord in their distress, and he brought them out of their... No, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper, and the waves of the sea were, calm, were hushed. They were glad, and it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love, for his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people, and praise him in the council of the elders. As we come to this passage here, we come to the final example that is given to encompass these people from north, south, east and west. These people who have experienced the goodness of God. This final passage describes people who are calling out in praise that the people would exalt the steadfast love of the Lord. Now some suggestions from some commentators suggest that this section is not just describing people from the south, from the south but people who have gone down to the depths of the ocean. These people are at the peril due to their profession. There's no hint of culpability here. It's not because they've sinned against the Lord. In fact, they've seen the wonderful works of God, and yet it's those wonderful works of God that have put them in a predicament. We see a massive contrast here between the strength of man and the power of God. God who can raise and quieten down the oceans, and man who is simply at the mercy of the elements, and that moves to the commands of the ocean. We see the sound of God's voice. We see God's power displayed. He can stir up a storm, raising waves to the heavens and crashing them down to the depths. What is this ship? 
when compared to the might of the ocean. The passage describes that their courage melts away. They are at the point in this storm. There was a point in this storm where they felt totally capable and adequate and able to manage the risk level. While the storm was mounting, they were able to manage. It is at one point the storm gets so massive, the ship is raised up and then crashed into the depths that they cry out to the Lord. The weakness of man is, is, is described here as the people on the deck try to secure this ship and they're stumbling around like drunk people. Can't even keep their balance as this ship is tossed and turned. The terrible thing about this situation is that as they sit in this situation, the inevitability of death is absolutely certain. It's just a matter of time, isn't it? How terrible death must seem when you know it's inescapable, but you just don't know when it's going ha- to come. It almost reminds me of the story of Jonah when they're doing all that they can so that they don't have to throw Jonah. You know, they're throwing stuff overboard and finally they come to the point where there's nothing else that they can do. Again, it seems that they only call out to God once everything has gone absolutely so pear-shaped that there's nothing that they can do. Yet even at this point where they're being crashed into the depths with the ocean coming and flooding over the boat, they call out to the Lord and the enduring love of God. These people who could by right accept, uh, could only expect to receive nothing from God receive salvation from the Lord. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. Here we have that fourth recurrence again. Exactly the same words. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. God's respect, uh, God has his res- uh, response to this cry of distress from the helpless as they sink to the depths of the ocean. And again we see the immediacy of God's response, the efficacy of God's response. The storm is stilled to a whisper. The waves that threaten their lives are suddenly hushed. God's intervention not only deals with nature, but it restores their hearts. They go from being at their wit's end to the point that he says he made their hearts glad by calming the ocean. God just doesn't save them and leave them in the middle of the ocean. He guides them on calm waters to a haven that they desired to go to. Another display of God's wonderful deeds towards mankind. Each of these last two examples, being lost at sea and the previous one where they were... What was the previous one? <laughs> Helpless captives? The one? Huh? Yeah, that one. <laughs> Sometimes I, you know, it's hard to keep up with things. You've got so many things going on. But both of these ones issue forth with public praise. In the third, third example, you see those people who are at the point of death issuing forth songs of praise. And now we see these people. They're called into the, the company of the elders of the people and told to exalt and uh, praise together. Now, one of the things that I would like us to notice as we, we look at a common theme that happens through these four examples is the absolute helplessness of the people. This redeemed community that are calling to one another to praise God in each of the examples which would encompass all the experience of this redeemed community. 
There is this common thread of helplessness and hopelessness. We see also that there is that common theme of crying out to God in their distress. And we see God's enduring love issued forth in his immediate response to his people. What a wonderful God we serve. That even in the depths, when we deserve nothing, when we cry out to God for help, he will hear us and respond. Now as we go to the rest of our passage, the passage kind of shifts gears now. It's, not, it's done with the examples. And now it starts talking about God's sovereignty, God's power. So let's just read through those verses. He turned rivers into, de- into a desert, flowing streams into thirsty ground, and fruitful land into a salt waste because of the wickedness of those who live there. He turned the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into flowing springs. There he brought the hungry to live, and they founded a city where they could settle. They sowed their fields, planted vineyards, and yielded a fruitful harvest. He blessed them, and their numbers increased greatly. And he did, uh, and he did not let their herds diminish. Then their numbers decreased, and they were humbled by the oppression and calamity and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in trackless waste, but he lifted the needy out of their affliction and increased their families like flocks. The upright see and rejoice, but all the wicked shut their mouth. Now we see God's power described in two ways here. We see that it's absolute power. God, by his power, can declare that fruitful ground becomes as a wasteland and as a salty marsh. And he can, conversely, he can take the dry desert and turn it into a lush pasture land. Now we see that this power of God, it's a loving power. God uses his power. He does punish the wicked, but he takes this barren land, he turns it into a lush place, and he takes the needy and the weak, and he brings it and makes it a place where they can stay. Not only that they can stay, but that they can flourish and prosper. And finally, when they are afflicted, He takes the wicked and he casts them down and he reaches out to the needy once again. In response to this, the righteous people see this and they're pleased with what God does. See this God who has such amazing power at his disposal and his enduring love means that he uses it in such a way that he uses it and he's on the side of the weak and the helpless and the needy. Having received so much blessing from the Lord, God intervenes once again. He helps, the needly, uh, he helps the helpless and the needy. God's power is used for the powerless. God is the defender of the weak. God's potency is used for those who are absolutely impotent. We see again the commitment and the constancy and the prevalence of God's love for his people. This is a love that burns hot and is not going out. This is a love that is steadfast and secure, that will not be shifted. God's love is set on his people. The very act of God saving his people fills the upright, it fills the righteous people with joy. They rejoice when they see the wonderful things of God. The wicked people have their mouths closed and their voices silenced. But those who at one time called out to God with their dying breath. God gives them a voice 
And they rejoice as they see God's power being used and being used on the side of the weak and and the pitiful. This fills on my mind when the, rich, which, uh, when the uh, righteous rejoice of a picture of heaven where the righteous, having seen the salvation of God, they issue forth this wonderful benediction. Having seen the wonderful acts of God, this issues forth in a public testimony of the righteous. The elders coming with their bowls of the prayers of the saints declare before the Lord, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God. With your blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So finally, having walked all points of the compass, having seen people at various points of lostness, helplessness and weakness, and the extent of God's covenant faithful love expressed to these people who call out to him for mercy. With these examples, let us praise God for his goodness and his grace. Those who were lost, those who were sick, those who were bound in chains, and those who are lost at sea, close to the point of death. So we've closed with our verse 43. Let the one who is wise heed these things and ponder the loving deeds of the Lord. How could we summarize this? Give thanks to the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, like it says in verse, verse 2. Come redeemed. Raise your voice. Recall once again the story of your salvation. God's steadfast love is displayed by his sovereign power exerted in his rescue of the helpless. Voices once distressed are transformed into, joyous, into a joyous community that celebrates his enduring steadfast love. So come, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Come. Now what I would like to say in closing is that there's some of us that are generally more contemplative and there's some of us that generally are more able to evangelize and open our mouth and speak about God's goodness. And what I would like to encourage us to do, for those of you who like to think deeply about the goodness of God, do so. But then, having done so, thinking about the goodness of God and the extent of his enduring love towards us, do what is not natural to your, your usual disposition. Open your mouth and speak about the goodness of God. For those of you who easily talk about the goodness of God, take some time to ponder, look at this psalm and see the depth from which God has brought to you. It's great that you can open your mouth. Open it with more depth the next time you open it. And come and talk about how good and great God is. So that as a community, as we encourage one another, we will all say, give thanks to the Lord for his unending love endures forever. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for this psalm. It's a long psalm, but it's a wonderful psalm pointing us to your hesed, Lord, your unending and enduring love for your people. Thank you, Lord, that we are those people who are lost, sick, captives, Lord, who are at the point of death, Lord. Most of our terrible situations are because of our own sin, Lord, but in your mercy, you responded when we called out to you in our distress. So we praise you. Thank you for saving us, Lord. 
Help us to ponder your wonderful works. Fill our mouths with testimonies of your goodness, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this Thanksgiving we would open our mouths, Lord, and sing of your goodness and give thanks to you, for you are our Lord and our Redeemer. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, having heard once again of the steadfast love of God, may your hearts be filled with thanksgiving to the one who has brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Ponder his greatness this Thanksgiving weekend and open your mouths with testimonies of his salvation. Amen.